Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to a special edition of the European VC, which we're calling Grilling and Mythbusting with the EIF. We're talking to David Danner, head of ICT investments at the EIF. And since the EIF plays such a central role in the ecosystem, we've reached out to our community and former guests for questions to David. And the lines were hot, leading us to name the interview as just stated, grilling and mythbusting. This is the first part of the segment, and we're covering exactly what the EIF's investment strategy is, to what extent member country contributions impact EIF allocation, the interplay with the EIB, the European Investment Bank, and the gaps that EIF seek to fill in the European capital market. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. David, hello. Welcome to the UVC. It's super nice to have you. How is everything today? Quite good, I have to say. Very busy. I think that's the same for everyone, especially in this industry, with everything resuming and getting close back to normal life, I would say. But good summer. We're now ready to finish the year before starting the new one. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> that's the trend, right? David, we are really excited to be doing this episode. And we decided to change things up a bit in terms of what our standard episode is. Considering the humongous role that the IF plays in our ecosystem, in the European venture ecosystem, it's only natural that almost every single stakeholder has a very strong view or opinion about the IF. And so I wonder if you'd be up for a special grilling and myth-busting episode with David Danner from the AIF. That sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the title. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, right? <laughs> Maybe before diving down that rabbit hole, give us a quick rundown. Who's David Danner and how did you end up with your position at the AIF today? Sure. So I'm David Danner. I'm a French citizen living in Luxembourg now for a bit more than 13 years. Originally from Paris, where I was born, raised and studied before started working at Société Générale in the private equity uh, group, making notably VC fund fund investments already, mainly in France with, I would say, maybe uh, less finance power than what we have now uh, at IIF. And then I stayed there actually something like five years, and then I wanted to try to go a bit abroad. I'm not going too far either, but <laughs> trying to go abroad and with a more international exposure. So I joined a PwC at that time here in Luxembourg in the corporate finance practice. For almost two years, I was there focusing on valuation, fundraising for startups, things like that. And after that, I had the opportunity to join the EIF in the VC team. It was in September. 2010, so quite some time ago. But yeah, I had this opportunity and since then I've been there for um, now more than 11 years, enjoying very much what I'm doing and evolving also uh, in the company in terms of uh, responsibility and overview of what the VC market is in Europe. 
And now, time for probably the most anticipated segment of our podcast ever. Let's get down to the grilling and myth busting. David, you may not know this, but we have a Slack community attached to the EUVC, and that's, of course, full of people in the industry. So VCs, emerging managers, angel investors, you name it. What we did ahead of this episode is we reached out to them and said, guys, do you have topics that you are dying to ask the EIF? Because we've got them for a grilling session. Are you ready for this? (laughs) Always ready. (laughs) Awesome. And of course, listeners, you just heard me advertise our community. You should definitely go there to the European VC dot com slash community sign up hopefully we'll have another session with david that you can add questions for but we also have a bunch of others coming up so of course join us there and with that out of the way david let's get started the first question is of course would you let us know what is the eif's investment strategy as a fund of fund maybe before that something which is important to know is the fact that indeed we are a big fund of fund but we are not a typical fund of fund meaning that we are not managing a legal entity of fund with a predefined investment strategy over time. We are managing various sources of money. And this is what we call the kind of mandates. And each and every of them has its own strategy and objectives. And also something important to know is that 95% of what we do is managing and investing EU public money. So it comes also with a number of strings attached and also some policy objectives, which might be sometimes different from what a typical private LP would be doing. But still, we are very much focused on financial returns because we have the chance that most of those policy objectives are met by nature and by design by VC funds, such as the initial objective of EIF of supporting innovation and job generation within the EU. I don't know any VCs that would not be looking at growing companies and, you know, increasing the number of employees and developing innovation. So we are in a kind of luxury position of overviewing almost everything which is happening in the VC scene in Europe and being just here to select what seems to be the most appropriate and the better equipped teams, also the most skilled ones, to deliver the better returns. So just to come back to your question, we are managing all in all more than 40 various mandates. So from very big ones to much smaller ones, big ones being more kind of pan-European mandates and the smaller ones being uh, to some extent, sometimes even regional mandates within a country. So there's a full range of programs and we are typically, for when it comes to the bigger ones, mixing them depending on the investment strategy of each and every VC fund that we want to back. The two biggest ones are the ones that we are managing on behalf of two entities. One being the EIB, so the European Investment Bank or Mother Company, and the other one on behalf of the European Commission. The one on being managed on behalf of the EIB is a bit more generic in the sense that we are investing in VC funds starting very early on as soon as a tech transfer type of project up to later and growth stage. The recurring point and requirement here on this one is, first of all, a very strong EU commitment, typically two-thirds of the total invested amount to be invested into EU companies. And by EU, we mean EU 27 now and capable of delivering higher returns. The ones that we are managing on behalf of the European Commission is always based on the EU financing programs. So the last one was based on the period covering 2014 to 2020, 
So now it is over. And the new one for the period covering the budget per budgeting period of 2021 to 2027 was supposed to be ready at the beginning of the year. But because of the sanitary situation, it was put a bit on hold with a strong focus from the member states to develop and deploy some kind of a rescue plans, what we call the European Guarantee Fund, which is a program we are currently investing and it will be fully invested by the end of the year. This is a bit of an unusual context, so unusual programs for unusual context. Mm -hmm. So just coming back to this European Commission program, typically when it comes to VC, this is about supporting two types of players. The first one is a type of players which are active in what we call the underdeveloped and without the pejorative aspect, underdeveloped markets when it comes to VC. Here we are referring to Central Eastern Europe to a certain extent, Southern Europe, or some particular geographies which are not that well addressed. And before starting the recording, we were notably discussing about uh, what was announced yesterday with Andreas as uh, the closing of this uh, Icelandic fund. It was a first ever investment there. And this is typically a region where you have quite some interesting companies, but very few money at work to help them. So this is something that we do with that. And the second type of and categories of player that we typically support with this program is the ones which are active in what we call the critical sector of strategic importance for Europe. And here we are talking about technology sectors where the Europe as a continent, but typically the EU, has a role to play at a global level to be the leading entity, the leading geographical area. We are more and more focusing on the so-called deep tech category with the reference to um, AI, blockchain, space technologies, quantum technologies, cyber defense, cyber security, and a couple of other ones. So this is something which is of strategic importance. At the same time, it does not prevent us from backing, I would say, more generalist type of players with this program, even in a more developed countries when they come with something which also addresses the policy objective of these mandates. So all in all, when we find something which seems of interest for us, but not only for us, because we are not only looking at what makes sense for EAF, we are looking first at what makes sense for the market. So when this is something that we consider makes sense for the market, usually we can find some uh, resources to invest in it. So this was for the two main mandates. But then also on top of that, we have some additional mandates. One, for instance, for Germany, a couple of years ago, when it started some 15 years ago with this mandate, there was no local public entity making fund of fund investments. It was exclusively done through EIF and it continues. Now you have KFW, which is coming back and making some investments, but we are still managing quite significant amount of money doing that. And maybe one last element, and sorry for the long answer to the question, <laughs> last element is about the geographical element as well for this European Commission mandate. Typically, what we had for the program, which is now over and which ended up by the end of 2020, is that we still had this two-third requirement, but it applied to what we call eligible countries, which in the context of this program was EU, but not only EU. It also included what we call participating countries, which were non-EU countries, which contributed financially to the financing of the European budget. And in return, it opened eligibility for them to receive investments. I was mentioning Iceland. This is one of these countries. We also had Israel, where we made a few investments as well. So this is a type of things that we've seen. 
And that was a very long answer giving us the mandate and the uh, vertical focus. But I'm curious, what about the requirements for the um, partnership? What are you looking at when you're looking at the team and all that? What's your thesis there? Do you have one inside the ICB team? Does it differ from team to team and so on? I would say it's really on a case-by-case basis. We receive a lot of proposals. Every year, it's more than 400 proposals. We have some people saying that EIF is everywhere. And it was maybe something which was more shared on the market a couple of years ago when the market was not as developed as today, saying, yeah, EIF backs everything. This is not the reality. The reality that, especially at that time when it was more difficult for funds to raise money, then now it's a bit easier. When we didn't support an initiative, typically it didn't materialize. So for sure, the one that we backed went to the market and it happened that indeed EIF was there. But it also means that at that time, thanks to us, we helped a number of managers to be established and having funds operating and starting making investments. So this is one element. But the second, what are we looking for? I would say it depends a lot. We always start with the investment strategy. The investment strategy is what will the team be doing? What type of companies are they looking for? What is the DNA of a typical company that would be targeting in terms of stage of development, geography, sector focus, if any, or technology level of risk in a way? If we think it makes sense, then we would be looking for the typical, what we call internally, and it's a bit, it has become a kind of joke internally, but this is how we call it, the magic triangle. The magic triangle is a triangle with three main pillars, and in the center, this investment strategies that I just mentioned. And the three main pillars, the first one for me, at least in terms of importance, is the team. By team, we mean the people who will be fully dedicated to managing, investing, and monitoring the companies to construct and build the portfolio of the fund. And we will be looking here for people with some experience in terms of investments. Even for a first-time team, we would need some people, maybe not all of them, but some of the team members with some investment experience. We'll be looking at their track record. We will be looking at their operational background, at their education, especially when it comes to very specialized strategies with a very deep technical knowledge needed to assess the companies. So we will be looking at these elements and see also what type of added value these investors could bring to a company because we are convinced that the good entrepreneurs now they have the choice. They receive, I will not say maybe tens, but at least a number of term sheets when they raise money. We have a few of them going for the ones paying the highest price, but what we are looking for is for the ones which are going for the teams that will bring them the highest added value. And we want to back those teams that will be selected by the entrepreneurs. So that's why we spend a lot of time assessing their skill set, making a lot of referencing on the market with entrepreneurs, with VCs, with corporates, with companies with which they have already worked when it went well when it went a bit less well. (laughs) And all in all, we try to make a fair assessment of whether this team is skilled and brings something new also to the market. Because as I said, the market has evolved a lot. Over the last 10 years, it has grown by at least four or five times in terms of volume. So there is money available. There are investors. We do not want just to bring a new player that will be competing against all the other ones that we already backed. You mentioned first-time funds there and the importance of track record. One way of backing first-time funds is giving them a bit less money to play with, but at least they get going and then they can prove themselves if they don't have that track record yet. Is that a strategy that the EIF will ever employ? No, because the thing is that what I've been defending and internally is that's a bit our mindset. If we like something, we think it makes sense, we should go full speed. Meaning that we will not just make a 5 million ticket bet to see if it works or not. Either we think that the team is qualified and skilled enough to manage a fund and then we help them and sometimes 
quite substantially. And this is typically the type of funds where we go up to 50% of the fund size, which is our absolute maximum. But otherwise, if we are not convinced, we just do not back them. Yeah. But when we are convinced, and indeed the requirement is a bit different for first-time teams, and what we've seen over time is that first-time teams that are coming to the market now are typically more in the framework of entrepreneurs so maybe with less track record in terms of investment, but a very strong operational experience, either as funders or as high C-level uh, people in big corporations. So this is something we assess and value as well. And for sure, we cannot expect a first-time team to come with tens of investments in a track record. Sometimes it's just BA type of investments, and sometimes it's no investment at all. But then what we do in this case is that we require that we'll hire at least one person with investment experience. Because when we mean track record, it's not only making investments, it's also managing a VC fund. And this is something quite special. And that hire, is that a uh, C-level hire? Is it a partner-level hire? So they need to find a GP or can they go and find a super good chief of staff who has done it before in another fund or a super good associate? We're open to any suggestions to the extent that it makes sense. In most cases, you have to admit that it's more at a partner level. Yeah. Because we want someone who will have a word to say and who can have an impact also. Because if it's just an associate, maybe his voice will not be heard as much as it should be. So we need someone with strong character enough to give his views and defend them, especially when it comes to what is better than the other at. The way some people get around this, or not get around it, but you know, they beef up the track record is by inserting an investment committee who has very strong background and a strong track record. Is that a construction that you see working or is it more of a hindrance? To be frank, we are not very different as VCs. When they make an investment, they back teams. They don't back the advisor of a startup. We back teams. So we back people who are fully dedicated to a fund who are part of the investment committee when it comes to partner level. It's always good to have advisors, but definitely we usually do not even accept having uh, external people being part of investment committees. They can be consulted uh, however the team likes, but the team is the group of people making the decisions. I want to come back to something you're talking about because it's one of the questions that we got. And the question was, to what extent does the IS decision depend on the funds they get from countries in the EU? So you talked a bit about that. And I'm not sure if this is a misconception <laughs> or not, but the question goes to the point of, you know, if a specific country increases their funding, does that then impact the geographic strategy of the EIF. How mm -hmm. does that work? The way it works is that typically, before considering any geographical aspect, we review every and each investment proposal on its own. Do we like it? Do we think it makes sense? Then we benchmark it towards what we have in our pipeline in terms of overlap with potential other deals and also just to see whether it qualifies. Sometimes we have very, very high quality pipelines, so even things which make sense and seems quite well done, but do not happen because we have better qualified teams. So yeah, we do not have a predefined allocation per country, for instance. We aim at having a kind of portfolio construction objective, but what we do is that the mandates we are managing, as I said, the two biggest ones are a bit agnostic in terms of geography. But then, as I said, we have more than 40 mandates. So the 38 plus other ones are more focused. And for sure, if we invest money coming from the German mandate, there will be a requirement that a multiple of this money goes back to uh, German companies. The same with Ireland when we have the mandate there, the same with Spain, the same with Poland. So we have mandates which are more national. And this is in this case, 
national money, which is provided to us by governments or local entities or managing authorities to help them developing their markets. For instance, we had a mandate a couple of years ago in Greece, where the market was very nascent with very few players. And thanks to this money, we managed to back a number of funds, and some of them now have developed very well. And graduated, I would say, to a regular financing, meaning that it's not only pure development type of financing, now it's also a financing which aim at making good returns. Another question we got, and you've been talking about this as well, David, is the capital allocations from the EIB being more sector-focused now than they have been before. I'm curious if you could expand a bit more on which sectors they are. Is it such that we should just go in and find the strategy of the new Horizon 2020? I can't remember the name of it. If you're not within that, then you're out? Or how does this work? No, and uh, I want to be very clear on this. This is not the case. What we don't want to do, actually, is to make people deviate from what they want to do. If a manager plans to make investment in a certain sector or in a certain type of company, this is because they are convinced that they are good at that. So we don't want to ask them to change to please or one of our mandates. So what is very true is that we are going into more and more specialization. This is a message that we have been sharing for a couple of months on the market. And our, our chief executive is also spreading the word. And this is very true. We are going into more specialization. Because we consider that notably when it comes to early stage investments, we have done already quite a lot. And now the market works well. It's not that we will not continue investing there. We will, for sure. And we are still making and signing deals. We have signed a number of them last week. We will continue until the end of the year. So we will continue. But the focus might be switching a bit to more specialized funds indeed, and also a segment of the market which is still a bit underdeveloped, but at European level, which is about growth financing when it comes to financing runs of tens of millions of euros where we have very few players in Europe capable of leading those runs. How about in the other end of the spectrum? Because, you you know, the nascent categories and the emerging markets, oftentimes you'd say that you can't deploy a large fund into a very small sector or a very small geography. What is the lower level that you see fit for the EIF to go in with? We do not have an absolute amount. But what is very true is that considering how you need to diversify a VC portfolio when you're starting making investments, the financial needs you mean to make a management company viable, what you need to properly invest a fund, I would say that a fund size below 40 or even 50 million euros is hard to support for us because the metrics just do not work. But then it doesn't mean that all the funds have to be at a five. 500 million for sure. So we have a large range of fund sizes from, I would say, 40, 50 up to billions. And we are investing on our side, I would say usually a minimum ticket around 10 million euros. We can go much higher, but then it's not that common. I would say the sweet spot is around 20, 25 million euros. It makes the link also with the second pillar of this magic triangle I was referring to, which is about the fund parameters, what we call fund parameters. And by this, we mean two categories of fund parameters. One, which is about terms and conditions, which has everything about management fees, team commitment, things like that, to ensure a proper alignment of interest between the LPs and the GP. And the second category is a bit more theoretical, but at the end we realize over time that it helps a lot, especially for first-time teams to guide them. It's how they intend to deploy the fund. It's a kind of fund model. 
not super complex Excel type of file, but at least to understand if it fits with what the team has been doing, if it's a repeated team, or if uh, the first-time team um, has still uh, at least one fit uh, on hers on uh, what uh, they can expect from a VC portfolio in terms of returns and uh, holding and things like that. You said something that I have to dive deeper into, which is the fund economics that you believe are necessary for a fund to be sustainable. We are seeing in the U.S., great returns coming from solo GPs. And many of them, of course, being, we're seeing that in Europe as well, but in the States, it's much more, <laughs> we have many more of them. But oftentimes these guys are coming from positions where they don't need the money anymore. So the GP economics of them taking out a wage, you know, that's not what it's about. It's about doing venture investing. And for them, doing a fund of 10 million, it would be perfectly fine if they're doing stuff in sectors that are, you know, in the VC twilight zone that not many private LPs believe in or understand or are capable of betting a manager on, then I would say that there's a very, very real place for the EIF to back them. What are your thoughts? There? Yes and no. <laughs> Which is a good answer. <laughs> okay, uh, next question. <laughs> no, I would say no to start because first of all, we do not do solo GPs. We always require a minimum number of partners because we are convinced that those solo GPs typically are raising money more from family office type of investors. We are more and more, if not exclusively, focusing on institutional type of VCs, which means that they have to follow a number of rules in terms of reporting, compliance, and many, many things on top of making investments, which require some kind of infrastructure behind them. This require a couple of people at least. And in addition to that, we also are convinced and still continuing on this added value topic I was mentioning. We are convinced that to provide a concrete and valuable added value to a company, you cannot be a board member in more than six, seven, let's say eight maximum active companies at the same time, which for a solo GP will become an issue. And that's why I was referring to kind of metrics. We have some metrics which are not just a guess, but definitely based on experience. And over time, since AIF has been launched more than 25 years ago, we have backed more than 700 VC funds. So this is kind of, I would say, a database which is quite exhaustive and maybe more than what we can find on the market. So yeah, this is something which comes with experience. Initially, a couple of years ago, we would have said maybe five. Now we understand that a partner can be charged of a bit more than five companies, but definitely not more than eight at the very maximum. So this would require indeed for a VC fund of 50 million plus at least two, if not three partners. Would you, David, be up for an open invitation from the European VC to be on a panel with a bunch of solo GPs and then having that discussion? Always happy to contribute to anything which uh, which <laughs> will help. But, you know, we know a number of them and some of them are very good. I don't say that it's not the case. What I mean is that it's another type of asset class even for me. Yeah making maybe similar type of investments, but in a context which is not fine-tuned and operational for international or institutional investors. I would say maybe not for us, if you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David, um, it's my understanding that EIF has always looked at filling gaps in the European uh, venture ecosystem and even uh, you know, maybe in the early days, not only filling gaps, but creating something. <laughs> You've hinted to this, but I'd love to double down on it. What are the gaps that you're still looking at? today and maybe a more personal question you know what are the gaps that you find more interesting and are actively looking at in the professional capacity i would say <laughs> that are the gaps uh, that we identify 
first one is at very, very early stage, meaning even before seed to some extent. When it comes to highly technological companies, still at a project level, having to transition to the market, we are still suffering in Europe from a severe lack of financing. And this is why there's been an initiative called the EIC, European Investment Council, launched by us and the EIB, and the EIB is now in charge of its deployment, which is to provide equity type of financing to companies at very, very, very early stage to help them developing and becoming investable for institutional investors, even from seed stage. This is something which we are working on, but finding relevant and appropriate tech transfer type of investors is not easy and takes time. And the second huge gap is about growth stage. We made some research, and I think we are not the sole one, everyone speaks about that, more than 80% of the $100 million and plus rounds of European companies are led by non-European investors. This is something which, from a financial perspective and also from a policy objective, is not acceptable. So we have to do something about that, but not us only. Everyone has to work on this. We are regularly working with what we call the national uh, promotional institutions, the likes of uh, BPI in France, KFW in Germany, or AWS in Austria, all those type of investors. They have their own programs, which are national for sure. It helps. We as pan-European player can also help, but we need to develop further this ecosystem and to populate actually this market even more. We've been making a number of quite significant investment, I mean, in terms of number and ticket sizes, but it's far from being enough. We need to help the market having maybe tens of that type of investors managing billion plus funds Mm -hmm. so that they can compete and remain attractive for entrepreneurs when they have to raise large funds and expand at a global level, if not already done, but to become not the European champion. That's not what we are aiming at. We want Mm -hmm. global leaders. Of course. And um, on a more personal level? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. No, at a personal level, it fits well with uh, what the Commission actually is doing. I'm convinced that there are a number of sectors where Europe should be leading the game. We made some analysis again recently on uh, the number of engineers. We have in Europe far more engineers than US, Canada, and I don't recall which other country was altogether. Yeah. Why don't we manage to keep them in Europe, first of all? And why don't we manage to have yet Europe being the leader in a number of super technology and new type of, I would call them, disruptive technologies. And by disruptive, I mean disruptive in terms of pure technology, disrupting markets and disrupting also business models. We have the brains in Europe to do so. We need the money, maybe, and also a vision, a long-term vision, because some of those sectors, I was already referring to them, but to give the names again, quantum technologies. This is something which can have a huge and massive impact at any level on any economy, but not only economy, to the daily life of everyone. But this is not something which comes by magic. You need to finance the research. You need to finance projects. You need to finance initiatives in these areas. We are starting, but we need more means for that. And we cannot do anything just by ourselves as well, for sure. We need also some support. You also talked about, you know, from a more professional perspective, you know, uh, the first gap being that tech transfer-ish gap, whatever we want to call it. And now you're talking about financing research to get, you know, these sectors. It's very close, right? But it's very hard to do, at least from my perspective, you know, for a VC fund or whether it's an established one or an emerging one, doesn't really matter. Yes. 
to collaborate with these tech transfer offices or universities. Yes. I've seen some models, I've seen many attempts, and I wonder if you have some thoughts around, you know, what works, what do you like to see? Are there any learnings there? Yes, because actually we've been making quite a number of technology transfer type of investments by partnering with the public or private research centers, universities, groups of universities, and still we are making a number every year. I think this is something which is really difficult, for sure. We have to make sure that, first of all, the universities understand that they can initiate the process, but they cannot remain the leading investor or control the project. If you want to compete, it has to become a private entity going to the market and competing against all the other players in the world. This is the first step. Second step is that we need also to find and to have and identify people, not only the researchers. We have them. We need to strengthen them to make sure that they want to remain in Europe and they feel that they are supported. But then I can easily understand that it's hard for that type of people with this skill set to become investors. That's not what we are asking. Yeah. We're asking people with some investment capacity to partner with them. And that's when I was referring earlier again to the kind of combination of skills we need for emerging teams. That's typically the type of project that we could be supporting. We have a number of them that we are making every year, and it's coming sometimes from areas where we wouldn't expect, sometimes from a Eastern European country. We have very interesting projects there and a lot of innovation. It's just completely below the radar. No one knows. Yeah. So, and for sure, we cannot expect established VC teams to start making investments at that level. Maybe some of them could either dedicate a small percentage of their fund or raise a separate vehicle for that type of project with a dedicated team. We cannot expect the big ones to come and from their main funds invest in that type of initiatives. It wouldn't make sense either. There's another gap that I see, and I'd love to have your take, which is, and this comes very much from my perspective, so I might be geographically biased, of course. <laughs> I don't think so, <laughs> but let's hear. Which is oftentimes in Europe, I have the feeling that we are missing LPs with the risk profile or that are ready to do venture. If we, for example, compare ourselves to the US. Yes, yes. Is there a role for EIF in that field? What's your take there? Definitely, there's an issue. The issue is that Europe remains at the end highly fragmented, first of all. Meaning that if you go to France, you have mainly French LPs. If you go to Spain, it's Spanish ones. Germany is a bit different. It's a bit more international, but by international, I mean US. <laughs> so, <laughs> so definitely there's something which starts to be better with this NPI that I was referring to, the likes of KWBPI, which start investing in managers and VC funds which are not based in their home country, but invest partially in other countries. And this is why, for instance, we have difficulties to back a VC which would be only looking at his own country. Even France only or Germany only, which are big countries, yeah. it wouldn't be sufficient. It has to be a bit more pan-European, not that they have to cover 27 countries, but at least to look at what's happening outside our borders. So as a first step. Second step, what should we do? I think something which is uh, very significant is the fact that over time and yeah, over the last 10 years, we've seen, first of all, more and more corporates investing in VC funds. This is something interesting, and not only European ones, sometimes the European branch, but of US-based or Asian corporates. First of all, those corporates have to understand that making an investment in a VC fund is not just opening them the door to come and cherry-pick the companies they want. This is a partnership. This is a win-win deal. They have to offer something to the VC, which in return 
can open his pipeline and collaborate, but there are rules to follow, and especially when it comes to the economics of the fund. But this is maybe a bit too technical for now. Another element of importance is something that we've done at CIF. I was just saying as an introduction that 95% of what we do is public money. The remaining 5% was specifically this topic. Over the last years, we have been raising and we are continuing raising fund of fund of funds from private investors. And by this, we mean investors or companies, it can be smaller pension funds, corporates, which want to be active in this asset class. It might be European or non-European ones. They want to enter the innovation market in Europe because actually corporate innovation, corporate venture has not worked as well as was expected. And they realize that sometimes they're a bit too far from the field. So what they do is that they want to invest in VC fund. And instead of going highly selectively in one or two, and by chance it can work, they come to us. A number of them have reached out to us asking whether we could help. And what we've done is that we have set up a fund of fund to give them access to European innovation, to European VC funds. And we have been investing this program and offering them an access also notably to what we call the best of the best, so the most performing funds to show them that the European market is working and is developing well. But referring again to this exponential increase of the market size, when I joined the IF 11 years ago, we were making three to 400 million euro investment a year. It used to represent up to 40, 45% of the overall European market. Yeah. Last year, we signed 1.5 billion euros of commitment into VC funds. It represented, I think, something between 12 or 13 and 13% of the overall market. This is a huge increase, huge evolution. We see successful companies every day and also coming from everywhere in Europe. And this is something which is extremely important to know and to share. UiPath, which is one of the major successes in the recent years, originally comes from Romania. Now, even in the US, people know Romania exists (laughs) and can (laughs) produce tech champions. And we are talking to a couple of VC funds in Romania who are very satisfied with that outcome because they are now seeing their valuation skyrocket of companies that are no way related to UiPath and they weren't even in it themselves or anything. So that <laughs> we're very happy for that development. David, we're coming up on the last four minutes that we have with you. We have gotten through almost one third of the questions we've received from our uh, uh, dear community. So what we'll do is we'll go to the quickfire and then we'll hopefully be able to book a slot in your calendar for another uh, grilling. For sure. So David, the quickfire round, it's 30 to 60 seconds per question. Are you ready for three of the kind? All good. For you personally, David, what areas excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? I think the deep tech component is a very attractive aspect of the VC market. And by deep tech, I don't mean, as it was maybe understood some years ago, semiconductors or hardware. I'm talking about what we mentioned, very uh, fundamental research development of things which will have an impact. This is something having an impact on daily life. And what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you joined the EIF? I'll have to think about it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, start, we'll start the next episode with that question. <laughs> I think that's a good opening. Sure, uh, surely. <laughs> final question, what can we expect in the future from David Dana? Good question. I hope that what we do at EIF and what I'm contributing to do is continuing helping the market, helping filling the market gaps. Sometimes what people do not understand is that when we say no, to someone or to a proposal. It's not because we are mean or because we like saying no. It's always the most difficult part. If we say no, 
we systematically spend some time over the phone explaining to the people to whom we say no why we say no. Sometimes people take it in a bad way, too bad for them, but the ones which take it in a constructive way, and I have plenty of examples, when they take it in a positive way and thinking about it, working on it, they come back one, two, three years later with a proposal which has been much, much, much improved and in many cases, it led to an investment. So when we are providing feedback, it's not that we are saying that what is offered is bad, that we think, and based on our experience, that it can be done in a better way, which would increase the chances of materializing. Because if we make an investment as EIF, but no other LP is interested, we lose our time, we make people lose their time, and it's good for no one. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Thank you for joining us, David. It was really nice to have you here today. Hopefully we can set up another of these because the questions just keep on coming. <laughs> I'm sure. So uh, <laughs> looking forward to meeting you again. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.